Hi, I'm Bridget. Hey, it's Samran. And this is Mark. And this is Policy Talks. So we're here in the studio today to talk about the year ahead, an international security, intelligence, and defense outlook for 2018. Now, this is a conference we covered last year as well, and it's been a very good, helpful primer on updates for security and the outlook ahead. And so luckily today, I'm here in the studio with two of our resident researchers, Samran Roy and Mark Hyken, who are both in security studies, and they're going to give us a little rundown. And our roundtable today will focus on some of the highlights of the conference and feature interviews conducted by our researcher and editor, Samran Roy, with some of the panelists. To access the panel discussions in their entirety, please visit our website, www.policytalkspodcast.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter, at PolicyTalksPod, for updates and links to panel discussions from the conference. So jumping into it, Samran, what were, what were some of your key thoughts going into this year ahead 2018 for sure uh first of all thanks for having me and yeah this was my second year attending uh this year ahead conference and uh i had a very uh positive uh understanding and uh, i guess what i took away from the conference was that uh there are bigger threats uh better big bigger security issues that the uh, the, the conference outlined and the way the conference did it it was very uh simple to the point that because it broke the threats and the security issues down to four categories uh and these were the four different panels that the conference organized the first panel was uh, pretty ge- geopolitical in nature it outlined uh, three different uh geographical areas and the potential for the security risks they will have for the upcoming 2018 year uh, these areas were uh asia pacific um, the Middle East, as well as the Russian, uh, Ukraine, and the the Baltic and Eastern European uh, ge- geographical area. Uh, followed by this uh, panel, the next panel uh, jumped into peacekeeping and uh, uh, missions of Canada abroad. It really focused on discussing the factors in the peacekeeping, um, the, the various international organizations that have emerged as part of the peacekeeping uh, fora and fauna. And uh, the next panel, it jumped into the Canada-U.S. relationship. It viewed it from two perspectives. Uh, from First of all, from a missile defen- defense perspective. And second of all, it uh, talked about the, 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 the difference of the eco- economic relationship between Canada and uh, USA under the Trump administration. And the last panel uh, was uh, one that I really thought stood out. It discussed the cyber threat to Canada as well as speaking on uh, the various evolution of the cyber threat, talking about disinformation, uh, election campaign threats, uh, what what can we expect potentially down the line for the Canada's 2019 election. And that one was uh, very interesting, and it featured uh, key researchers as well as a security expert from the uh, from the Canadian uh, main uh, Intel uh, Signals Intelligence Agency, uh, CSC, the Community Security Community Security Establishment, a Communication Security Establishment. We can jump into some of more more uh, topics that stood out to me, and um, overall, I really came up came came across and thought it was a well done conference and with a lot to lot of information to sift through. Awesome. So then we're going to jump into our first topic, titled "Missions, Missions, and More Missions." This is all about UN mission and Canada's role in peacekeeping. 
think about three types. We think about democracies, and we think about autocracies, and then the in-between are anocracies. And it turns out that anocracies are the most worrisome when you're thinking about state stability. So you're more likely to witness uh, civil wars, coup d'etats with anocracies. And so with this sort of backsliding that we're witnessing through since the early 2000s of the number of democracies to this anocratic state, the concern is, is that there's going to be uh, um, uh, states needing uh, the international community to respond because they're not going to be able to adapt to the changes that are happening within their state. And so one of the questions that we're asking ourselves is, given this backsliding that we're witnessing, what is the role of outside actors, be it states or regional bodies or the United Nations, to respond to this, to come to the aid of the states themselves if it's the case that they face an insurgency that's threatening the stability, or the populations because they're in the face of a state that starts predating, starts sort of um, uh, targeting its civilian population um, as a way to sort of counter uh, movements toward opening or declining um, um, of, the, of the political system within that state. And so one of the things we have to think about is the different ways in which the international community might get engaged uh, and, and how they might get engaged. And again, whether they do it individually as states, so neighbors tending to go, you can think about Pakistan, um, uh, not Pakistan, India into, Bangla, uh, into Sri Lanka um, at one point, but other uh, situation, but then also the United Nations and NATO, for instance, you can think about uh, Mali. Um, and uh, so with this backsliding, uh, it is a cause for concern because what it means is there's going to be a demand uh, for greater intervention. And then that raises the question of whether there's the political will to supply that intervention. So that who you heard was Monica Toff talking about Canada's role in peacekeeping and the evolving nature of peacekeeping itself. And Monica Toft is a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Uh, she's dealing with some pretty heavy topics. Can you explain a little bit more on your thoughts of anocracies? Well, to summarize, anocracies are sort of this weird in-between category between what we would call autocracies, so, you know, dictatorships and such, and democracies. And the weird thing about them is that they combine traits from both. I mean, there's a whole possible range of mixes, like some will be more democratic, some will be more autocratic. But the point is, they don't really make sense. It's like, in a democracy, you could, you know, resolve issues by, you know, electing a new party to power, or holding a referendum, passing legislation and such. And an autocracy could just repress everyone to the point that protest isn't an issue. But an autocracy, they're not democratic enough to really pass legislation on change or at least not an effective manner and they're not repressive enough to actually stamp out dissent so they're more likely to just experience civil conflict since you know the state doesn't have as much control as in either of the other categories and that's a problem because you'll have civil wars you'll have a coups like professor toft said and chances are those can't necessarily be resolved internally so you tend to need outside intervention and if we get more anocracies coming up then you know that means more intervention more countries would need to send missions abroad either that or it's, you know don't intervene and let things sort themselves out and that tends to be a really bloody and lengthy affair so 
we're definitely not uh, looking forward to what could be considered a quiet 2018. Not that 2017 has been quiet, but <laughs> you know, it's not going to be any better. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's what uh, the main message of Professor Toff was that uh, 2018 is expected uh, to have a rise in anocracies. I mean, we know that civil conflicts have existed in various parts of Africa, the Middle East, uh, and other ge- geographical regions. But what her, the, her message driving home was that peacekeeping as a, as a Western concept or as a Western activity in, in, de- in the developing world has not been particularly effective. Um, she through she conducted a, a thorough literature study, a literature review, and a statistical study of of peacekeeping operations. And her results that she discussed at the presentation at her, at her panel that you can listen to uh, as as part of her recordings is that uh, peacekeeping in helping states or helping the government change the situation in the country has not been particularly helpful. So as anocracies are rising, and what Mark explained as anocracies being something between a democracy and authority, it it questions, are peacekeepings worth the initiative? And this is particularly relevant because we have discussed on this podcast before and in the Canadian uh, politi- pol- political media, I guess, the con- the talk of a canned omission has been very relevant. And this is why the message of uh, Professor Toff was very timely, I felt, because it kind of gave a reality check that hey, there are other ways to do peacekeepings or there's other ways to do external influences and that can cause realist, realistic po- political change within a struggling country. I was about to say the exact same thing. If Because we had done previous episodes on Canada's role in peacekeeping and whether or not Canada was going to come back to peacekeeping in a force and what should that look like. But it, it seems like Professor Toft is having a real conundrum where she's causing a conundrum for us when we talk about it because she's saying it's so much more about the context and it's so much more complicated than we even previously thought. Is Canada doomed to go into a situation like we were talking about with the CAR in Mali? Or is there a way in which Canada can still participate without necessarily being doomed to failure? What did you guys think after after this? It's a bit more pessimistic than I think I previously was looking at peacekeeping. Well, peacekeeping's never been what we could consider an easy business. I mean, there's always a risk that uh, things turn ugly you, and uh, troops get killed. You could end up being involved for a long time in what's basically a quagmire. But anocracies could make it much worse in that like well it's an even bigger quagmire it's like things may not get better in the foreseeable future and it's like do you want to get involved in that necessarily because you could be there a long time and then next thing you know your voters are complaining that you know you've sent your troops on a mission that's doomed to fail yeah um and that was the mission, like that, was the message of another panelist, basically uh, Barack Barfi, who spoke about the Middle Eastern issue, and uh, one of the countries he really spoke about that is not even considered anocracy. Some it's, it's it's considered, I guess, even further back as a country that's dealing with severe political challenges is Libya, and uh, Libya has been in the news for various reasons, including the slave trade, and it's a, it's political. It's, it's it's considered to be a terrorist haven, and whatnot, and. The reason that Barack Barfi discusses is that after Muammar Gaddafi was toppled, due to the the very the very geographical truth of the country that it's split by this massive desert and there's uh, 
there's ethnic groups on both sides of the country and there is a complete power vacuum in this place. And let us say for a second that Canada considered to go into Libya as peacekeeping or whatnot and our, our other are part of a coalition to help Libya uh, become another become a become a democratic state or whatnot. The truth is what what Professor Toff's message and what Barack Barfi's message comes across is, and it resonates is that these issues are not simply solvable if that or or can be addressed just by peacekeeping, and uh, or 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 also just by UN or NATO peacekeeping. And that her another point was that more and more peacekeeping is becoming a regional initiative. Uh, and she talks about the effectiveness of the African Union in mm-hmm. various cases. And that makes us academics or uh, think about that maybe there is a model outside the UN-driven peacekeeping. So that was a lot to think about. But now we have to move on to our second topic, titled Managing Uncle Sam, Canada-U.S. Relations. Uh, the way we people talk about Donald President Trump in this country uh, has been translated into an excuse not to do things. We can't do this because of Trump. Uh, but the reality, if you look at the entire Canada-U.S. defense relationship in North America, which is more than NORAD, it's much bigger than that, and particularly NORAD, by and large, that relationship, as it's evolved and exists today, and as it exists in the future, as far as I can see into the future, has largely stayed immune from problems in perceptions and attitudes towards from Canada to the U.S. presidents and from U.S. presidents to Canadian prime ministers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's insulated in many ways from them. Now, certainly in terms of the 2005 decision by Prime Minister Barton not to participate in the American program, part of that clearly was politically motivated because everyone hated Bush. Mm-hmm. So it makes it difficult, I think... And again, but a lot of that was an excuse, too, because there are other issues involved about what it meant to participate, which never got into the public domain. I think partially here, in the case of missile defense and considerations which have now popped up against because of North North Korea, that my concern is that the current government is going to take the same line, well, we can't do anything, and it will functionally be an excuse. When in my, my own position on this is, we can't make a decision on this until we have a good idea what it means to participate. That means we have to talk to the Americans. And until we reverse policy and say, we, want to, we are interested in participating, we would like to participate, but we need to find out and talk to you about this publicly, then, which isn't a problem of Trump. This is not a problem of Trump. It's a decision the government has to make and not use Trump as an excuse. So those were strong words from Dr. Ferguson, the deputy director for the Center for Defense and Security Studies and professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Manitoba. It was definitely a lot to think about. Do you guys agree with that statement that in certain security situations, it's much is the U.S. being used as a scapegoat for kind of the the lack of political will to make certain decisions? Mm, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. It's necessarily something I 100% agree with, but for the most part, I would say, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, so basically, like, uh, the, the, the the gist of the message of uh, Professor Ferguson that, that he kind of explained uh, more in the presentation is that he feels that the current system of uh, missile, com- missile Defense Command th- that involves NORAD 
is not enough going forward. Mm-hmm. He discusses that the current uh, uh, command system is protected protective of only parts of the country and it's very dependent on the American uh, American decision and in our conversation uh, one of the things he mentions that uh, I asked him if there is a missile coming to Canada uh, is there a consensus or is there an understanding with the Canadian government that the Americans will take care of the missile with their advanced capabilities and what he mentioned was interesting he said within American missile command system there is no written protocol that says oh we will take care of the missile on your behalf so the so so what he explained is that American motivation may come in because a lot of the critical infrastructure, say a missile aimed towards Detroit, I mean towards Windsor, Detroit's linked to the to Windsor. If it's aimed towards Vancouver, it's linked to Seattle. So Americans, for their own protection, will maybe step in. Maybe may step in. But what he clearly is his 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 view is that this is not enough, and I agree with it because for too long Canada has stood back to a lot of the. Uh, security commitments and this is reflected in Trump's viewing of Canada and this goes back to uh, the initial the second discussion of the panel where Christopher Sands discusses about the Trump Canada relationship and he says what Christopher Sands discusses that if you show Trump some part of some extra commitment that you show Trump that we are we will step up in our uh, military uh, spending or our defense spending Trump will give you economic gains possibly like he's like he's yeah. saying Trump's trying to be Trump's what Christopher Sands is arguing is that Trump try, wants to look like a dealer that he's getting good that he's able to implement change and maybe if for Canada improvement in defense in defense spending could lead to improvements in NAFTA so these are some of the things to consider that's part of the bigger issue here I'm not sh- so sure about improvements to NAFTA. I mean, like Trump did run on an economic nationalism platform. And so the whole his whole campaign was based around improving things for the U.S. I'm not sure he'd really be willing to make economic concessions on NAFTA because a large part of it is like make sure the U.S. gets mm-hmm. a bigger cut of things. Maybe you'd see some a little bit of give, but I don't think there'd be really something significant on that front now he'd certainly act friendlier towards canada if we step up our defense spending sure but i mean that depends on whether he still sees nato as a sort of a club that you have to pay your dues to rather than just you know the promise to up your defense spending to two percent of gdp i think the way i'm sort of seeing it is kind of the larger picture of it's sad, I guess, in a way that we were so used to having policies and relationships as the status quo that even between different conservatives and liberals didn't change so much, especially in the way of security. But now we see it's almost as if a lot of politicians and a lot of policymakers really have to start from square one again with this administration. You hear things about the safe third country agreement where people are saying, are we really are we really going to admit that the U.S.'s stance on immigration is of the same values that we carry? And if that those values no longer come along, we have to revise our laws. And the interdependency has been great for trade. It's been great for the relationships between the two countries. But, you know, now we're... We kind of have to reassess what it is to be Canada and the values that we want to have when we have our own security and if if that relationship's really enough anymore. 
I mean, exactly, right? And uh, more and more, uh, this issue of national security, uh, border protection, for a very long time, these were not major issues for Canada ever since the end of the Cold War because the idea of a intercontinental ballistic missile threat was not real. But now it's slowly becoming, again, a major part of uh, our foreign policy, our national security with the emergence of, or the growth of, and the advanced growth of the belligerents of the North Korean uh, missile uh, missile program, right? And so if these threats are more and more realized, Canada, America, there needs to be a more joint collaboration. And I think that's part of the message that uh, Jim Ferguson wants to get out. I mean, I'd agree that maybe more cooperation on missile defense is necessary, but not because of North Korea. I mean, realistically speaking, North Korea, like uh, even generous estimates would still place them in something like 20 to 30 warheads and even assuming that they could build ICBMs for all of them and launch them towards North America if they're attacked or think they're about to be attacked they, why would they aim at Canada? Uh, the US is their main enemy here. Uh, why would you waste a missile of firing it at say Ottawa or Toronto when you could fire it at a major American city and make sure that you actually hit them or American forces or maybe even send instead of aiming them all at North America fire them at uh, South Korea and uh, Japan which have been North Korea's enemies for a long time I'd say me we should be more worried about relations with Russia deteriorating because that makes more sense yeah. they could like they would probably have more of a bone to pick uh, with us than North Korea would they certainly have enough missiles uh, and warheads to spare to launch a Canada as well as the US but saying that we need to step up our defense because of North Korea is maybe not uh, the direction I'd go in. Yeah, maybe from an American context, it would be more of a threat. You're right. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, uh, I mean, still, a shot on America does affect Canada's security relationship because they're so intertwined. And Ooh, speaking... <laughs> <laughs> this killer transition. Speaking of intertwined, our third topic with Stephanie McClellan is going to go to cyber attacks and missile defense. This is the, the Council for Foreign Relations has a, a list of uh, cyber operations uh, that have been publicly identified. Uh, they've been tracking them uh, up to going back to 2005. So in the past year, uh, there have been, uh, I think, 26 incidents so far in the first half of, uh, or the first three quarters of 2017. Uh, and some of them are... Uh, you know, are the sort of information operations, uh, the United States campaign uh, being one, and I'm not even sure that's on the list. Um, another example is uh, with uh, Qatar and uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, where hackers uh, that were traced back to uh, the Emirates uh, broke into a Qatari government information website and uh, um, gave a false quote uh, to a member, I think, of the, the Qatari regime, and it, it sparked a huge... Uh, you know, huge diplomatic face-off this summer. Um, so things like that, uh, ransomware is a big concern um, because that's something that uh, if it gets into a system that has security vulnerabilities, it can spread really quickly. It can do a lot of damage. Uh, we saw two big ones this year. The first one was WannaCry, uh, where it was um, it was in May. Uh, it was and that was uh, locking up computers and uh, demanding Bitcoin um, in order to uh, in order to unlock them or decrypt people's files. Um, the second one was known as NotPetya. It happened about a month later in June, and uh, in that case, it was it looked similar, um, 
But even if people were paying the ransom, it wasn't necessarily decrypting their files. So that one seemed to be just intent on doing as much damage as possible rather than raising money. So that was Stephanie McClellan, Research Associate at the Global Security and Politics Program at the Center for International Governance and Innovation. She was part of the panel on New Horizons, Cyber Attacks and Missile Defense. So after hearing that panel, what do you think were some of the main points for cyber attacks on Canada, especially with her with her view? Yeah, so her view was very interesting because uh, traditionally, even uh, myself, I had understood cyber attacks from a very uh, hacker-first perspective where uh, they're targeting cr- critical infrastructure and they're able to shut down um, systems and they're able to control systems that... You, which is something we have seen in the past with the Stuxnet attacks in uh, Ukraine recently by the Russian um, uh, Russian uh, military, but um, what her uh, perspective was was very unique is was that uh, more and more she argues that um, the cyber realm will be used uh, not directly only for attacks but also for influence, and she calls this as part of influence campaigns, and this involves um, activities such known as uh, misinformation, disinformation. Um, which basically are part of Russia's grander national security foreign policy um, foreign policy view, where basically they want to uh, cause as much um, destabilization within the Western uh, democratic system, and they have done this in the past, where they have targeted elections in the American election in 2016, the French election. Uh, Germany, they have had influence. Recently in the Spanish-Catalonia referendum, they had some external influence. And the way Russia does it is very innovative. It's very new. Uh, They use social media. They use social media manipulation, uh, Google uh, search engine manipulation. And it's very advanced. And uh, Stephanie McClellan's message was very timely, I feel. So I guess we could say that uh, Trump uh, was elected through fake news rather than just campaigning <laughs> against it. Huh? But yeah, I, I would say the big issue wouldn't be necessarily like hack the nukes, like she said. And anyways, that never work with the U.S. Uh, their computers are old enough that they're still working with floppy disks. But, <laughs> but we're definitely looking more along the lines of uh, misinformation being spread through social media networks, as in the U.S. election. They're seeing that now in Germany as well, cause since they're going to have to rerun elections there uh definitely stuff along the lines of ransomware that would target critical infrastructure and if you want to disrupt something ransomware targeting hospitals like WannaCry did in parts of the uk would definitely go a long way right there yeah uh yeah speaking of that like it was very interesting you mentioned about these attacks because uh one key message that i remember vividly uh like stuck to me was from Scott Jones of the Communication Security Establishment, and he uh, one important point he made was that the currently in the government there's a, a tremendous effort to make sure that the government networks aren't penetrated through phishing emails or uh, such attacks like um, spam emails or whatnot. And the, but the message he had was that uh, if the government or if the critical infrastructure or the other networks main source of defense is to make the user more educated, mm-hmm. it is a very poor sort of defense because all you need is one penetration one person opened the email and it can lead to a very uh, catastrophic type impact so that was one thing i want to just point out yeah but i mean the truth of the matter is most hacking isn't what people would imagine just like someone sitting at their computer all day trying to crack passwords until they finally get there you, you'll you'll never actually get into a system that way it would take too long usually it's just a matter of what we could consider social engineering so it's like it, 
it could easily be something like someone calling up an office pretending to be someone who needs a password or sending a phishing email like you said or mass phishing email campaign even to make sure you actually uh, get some successes and yeah it's bad if your defenses rely entirely on people being educated but there's no real downside to making sure that people are aware to begin with i mean it shouldn't be your only line of defense but it definitely should be something you you're doing so if education is one way in which we can secure ourselves against cyber attacks what did international law have to play into it is there was there any discussion of international law having some sort of resolution to hold people to task and you know at what point i always wonder with this topic because especially with news and social media how do you balance that line between having fact-checked resourced bodies of news and not let it bleed into censorship because i i can see some governments kind of taking it the other way you know you have censorship in china and what they would probably call is like propagandist news and cracking down on journalists and cracking down on lawyers. Where do you see the balance? Well, I would say a good step would be having multiple independent bodies actually checking news as opposed to relying on a single one, like a government body. I mean, it doesn't necessarily hurt to have the government, you know, do some fact checking, but you know, you don't want a situation like in China where the government just controls the flow of information almost outright. But um, in terms of cyber warfare and international law, it's kind of a weird spot in that. I mean, the, in international law, if someone launches an armed attack against you, you're allowed to retaliate at least with what's called a proportional response. So you can't do significantly more damage than the other side did to you. And that's all fine and well. There's lots of precedent when you've got physical armed attacks. Cyber attacks are kind of in a weird spot in that the consensus seems to be along the lines of you can respond with an armed attack to a cyber attack that causes physical infrastructure damage that's lasting. But that hasn't really happened much. I mean, I guess there could be a few exceptions such as, say, Stuxnet messing up uh, parts of what's believed to be the Iranian nuclear weapons program, but those kind of attacks are fairly rare. It's more just disrupting stuff, and that, like a lot of the speakers on the panel said, that's a big gray area, and at a certain point you have to wonder, it's like, would it actually be justifiable to launch an armed attack in response to someone, say, using ransomware on your computers? Probably not. But we don't know. There's no precedent. I mean, even in international law, like, we don't really have formal law about cyber attacks specifically so much as guidelines. Yeah, and uh, speaking about what other than education we can do, um, Canada is actually ahead of the curve, uh, speaking so because uh, Canada has learned uh, from the past election uh, interferences by Russia and uh, Canada recently with the announced uh, that the Canada the Facebook Canada has launched an election integrity initiative where basically uh, the six weeks prior to election uh, during the election um, all politi- political related posts uh, will have an uh, have to have mandatory man- it'll be mandatory for them to show um, who paid for this and who is it targeted towards uh, because that's a big part about um, stopping external uh, influence in uh, domestic uh, elections. 
other than that, uh, uh, there is also a there's also consensus within uh, the Canadian election system that since Canada still uses paper ballots, uh, Canada feels that it's more uh, more uh, protected from direct threats against the Canadian election uh, infrastructure itself. Uh, another uh, other other mitigation factors that are considered is that uh, Canada. As a as a state, uh, does not have uh, de- decisive uh, fault lines. Even though people have argued uh, that Russia, uh, the Russian uh, troll armies or the Russian uh, ha- uh, influence campaigns, could bring up issues around the Quebec separatism, uh, migrant issues, uh, refugee intake, Aboriginal issues as ways to create uh, or uh, drastically uh, narrow down fault lines. It's expected that Canada is, unlike other states, especially the, like the U.S., it does not have these. Divide, divisions present in society so Canada is in a very in a lot of ways hack proof of elections but the fact that the Elections Canada and uh, CSC has taken this uh, initiative earlier to make sure that Canada is protected is it shows that there's there's there is a lot of thought being put into this and the government is uh, being timely with it well that's good to hear let's just hope that uh, this time around Facebook can spot which ads are being paid for with rubles yeah <laughs> So I guess to round us off today, when you guys look forward to 2018, <laughs> in in the security world especially, what I guess give me one point that you think we're we're headed in the right direction that you feel very positively about new new information or new things coming out, and what are you a bit more pessimistic on? Give me, and either which way you can compliment sandwich it if you want. Well, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be the pessimist in the room, as is my uh, motif, <laughs> but. I'm definitely not optimistic with the way things are going between the U.S. and North Korea because North Korea has shown at this point they can make an ICBM. It's not much of a stretch to think that they can make a nuclear warhead that's small enough to fit on an ICBM, in which case they could launch a nuke at uh, North America. So they've got what we'd consider a nuclear deterrent now. And it would have been risky enough before trying to attack North Korea, even just to like destroy its nuclear program since we don't know where everything is and then they could retaliate but now it's definitely like if they even think someone's about to attack them they could launch a missile at the offender and so like that's problematic enough but you have president trump's tweeting which let's be honest is not restrained at all and he does tend to have a lot of bluster in those tweets and considering he's the president of the United States, the North Korean government could easily look at a tweet and think that it's not even a threat anymore. He's saying they're going to attack, and that could get ugly real fast. Uh, yeah, uh, for me, uh, what really stood out to me from this conference that I really took away was that the Middle East, that a region that has for a long time seen a lot of conflict and a lot of violence and a lot of uh, issues uh, socioeconomic sociopolitical geopolitical and it doesn't seem that based on the analysis provided by Barack Barfi that 2018 will really have a lot of change the main change driver that uh, Barack points towards is that the source of tension is shifting faster from fast from um, the Sunni Shia divide to the Saudi Arabia Iran uh, uh, power struggle in the region and um, as ex- as exemplified by the horrific events that are happening in Yemen right now, that uh, there there will be more war, there will be more conflict, and it feels that the issues of Syria, Libya, Yemen will remain 
for 2018 to be very uh, conflict-driven uh, areas, and there will be a lot of human rights, and there'll be a lot of uh, uh, there'll be a lot of war and uh, war and conflict in those areas for sure. Uh, in terms of a positive note, um, it's I mean it's a security conference, so positives. <laughs> we're we're not a between. cheerful bunch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean uh, it's so. I mean I'm pretty. I was pretty confident about the Canadian initiative with mm-hmm. democracy and uh, protecting democracy, and I'm hoping that has ends up being a good story. Yeah, I agree with you that uh, there's definitely good steps being made. Elections Canada clearly saw what what's happened with the U.S. and is trying to take steps to address that. And let's hope that things turn out better in 2019 than they did in 2016. So thanks, Samran and Mark, for coming in, joining me today, telling me all about the future for 2018. And thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content, as well as the full panel interviews from the Year Ahead Conference 2018. As always, this episode was made possible thanks to the support of the Carleton University Graduate Students Association at CKCU 93.1 FM. They provide us with the means to bring you the quality content that we do. We'd also like to give a special thank you to the Center for Security, Intelligence, and Defense Studies at Carleton University for allowing us to attend, record, and comment on the Year Ahead Conference. Until next time, I'm Bridget, and this is Policy Talks. (laughs) 